This is Jeff Chrisman, and I'm here this morning visiting with Evan Anderson, the founder and CEO of Osberg here in Oklahoma City. Evan, thanks so much for taking the time today. Yeah, my pleasure. Appreciate it. I thought what we might do is start off by hearing a little bit about Osberg and the services that you provide uh, for listeners that might not be familiar with you. Sure. So uh, Osberg is a B2B SaaS company and data company. Um, we got to market uh, in 2011 and kind of self-funded the business between 11 and 16. Uh, today we have about 35 employees. Uh, we sell to over 100 uh, upstream EMP companies, midstream companies. We sell to a lot of different groups within those companies, business development, new ventures, um, uh, engineering, land, geology, exploration. Um, and uh, we help companies utilize data and B2B SaaS products to identify opportunities, to drive efficiencies, reduce costs. Uh, there are a number of different use cases. I appreciate it. And then I was wondering, too, if you could talk, speak a little bit about uh, as far as what motivated you to start the firm, as far as what you, you, know, what you saw in the, in the oil and gas industry, uh, what you saw in terms of uh, you know, the, the paradigm change that you're going to help affect. Yeah, so there are kind of three data points that, that helped me kind of develop this thesis and vision. Um, the first data point was that through a family tragedy, I ended up managing a subsidiary of an independent oil and gas company here in Oklahoma City. Um, this subsidiary had uh, marginal wells, um, a small midstream asset, and some other things. And I kind of learned the business baptism by fire, and I was as much a, uh, a consumer of the data and the B2B SaaS products that were out there at the time as I was thinking about you know, creating something of my own. Um, I had a lot of friends on Wall Street that were using a lot of FinTech products, um, and through a series of conversations, um, I just felt like there was still a lot of data to be built, a lot of product to be built, um, and, um, and just had a different vision for how to utilize that data and that product to identify and buy assets on the upstream side of the business. The second data point um, was a article in The Economist, a special report back in February of like 2008 called The Data Deluge and um, how Varian, Google's chief economist, was talking about just how ubiquitous data was becoming and the need for statistics in analytics, uh, and it also, the, the article really stressed what you were seeing in the consumer space, things like Walmart doing a petabyte of transactions an hour, and them being able to forecast that if a weather event was going to hit the Gulf, um, that they needed to pre-order a ton of Pop-Tarts, hmm. because batteries, water, and Pop-Tarts were the top three items that everybody came for uh, in the event of a hurricane. Or Best Buy found that, you know, a quarter of their revenue only came from something like, you know, 4 or 9% of their customers. And so they really wanted to understand who those 4 or 9% of people were so that they could really target them. So the consumer space was starting to get smart about how to utilize data. Uh, you saw some, you know, fintech, I would say, was probably first. Consumer space was right up there. Legal tech. Now we see healthcare coming along. Oil and gas is one of these big industries that still represents a huge chunk of our GDP and I just didn't see a ton of startups or innovation in the space. So that was the second data point. The third data point was 
if you look at the history of the hedge fund industry, um, it's a fascinating story, and, and maybe I'm writing it because I don't really know it, but, but from my observation, it looked as though um, the hedge fund industry was a bunch of family offices in the late 80s, early 90s um, that were doing research, you know, pouring through paper uh, documents and things like that. Analysts were kind of doing this manual research um, and trading equities. You know, everything was kind of done through paper and manual. Um, and then in, in the late 80s, uh, Morgan Stanley hired David E. Shaw, who was the founder of D.E. Shaw. He was Jeff Bezos' mentor. Mm. Uh, Jeff Bezos worked for D.E. Shaw before he started Amazon. Um, David E. Shaw, uh, I, I, I would love to hear the story from him, but, but I get the sense that you know, what they were doing initially wasn't anything all that you know, difficult or, or ingenious. They were taking trading strategies like momentum that had been around since the Victorian age, and they were writing computer programs to model those, those trading strategies and then feeding it data to find patterns within the equities market. And that was kind of the beginning of quantitative trading. And I can, it, it, you know, it seems as though today, you know, you have these funds like AQR with $200 billion under management. They have an army of computer scientists writing all these different, you know, you know algorithms trying to find some sort of competitive edge. And over a period of 15, 20 years, all that competitive advantage has been traded away. Like it's, a lot of these funds have so much money and it's very hard for them to outperform the S&P. It feels like a lot of that initial competitive advantage in the early days of quantitative trading has been traded away. There's not a huge edge on the, on the data side anymore, the computer science side. And I just feel as though oil and gas will, will ride a similar curve. Mm. I feel like today there's still a lot of people making a ton of money using microfiche and paper. I feel like more and more things are becoming digitized. More and more I'm seeing companies embrace computer science and utilize technology in our space. And I feel that there's a 10 or 15 year window where there's a huge opportunity for those that really kind of run with data and run with computer science. But I feel that that window will exist forever, that that competitive advantage will be traded away just like what we saw in, in the hedge fund industry. So those are the kind of three data points it kind of gave me kind of the help kind of shape this vision uh, for what we're trying to do at Osprey. Very interesting. And then as far as when you're engaging with, you know, clients for the first time or starting to work with them, I was curious in terms of, uh, you know, how, how you conceptualize or how you, how you explain to them that you can help them as far as the, the that's a real, the that's process. a, that's a real challenge for me actually. So, um, you know, we sell to, um, just a wide variety of end users, uh, some of which you know are not that um, savvy when it comes to leveraging technology. Uh, and because I think the industry has been so successful not having to really leverage technology, I think culturally, um, you know, the industry uh, is slow to adopt new ways of thinking and leveraging data and products. And so. You know, one of my key hires I needed to bring early on here was a director of product because I recognized that, you know, where I, where I would be if I were utilizing the data in, this, in, in, in technology and computer science, I think is, is a very different place than our average user. Hmm. I think our average user, um, you know, is looking to do what they know today, you know, with, you know, from their perspective, you know, what they've done in the past, they're trying to find more faster and more efficient ways to do that. And it's challenging to get them to think differently 
about how to solve those same problems. They've been solving them the same way for, for 30 plus years. And so, you know, you can try to really change, be a thought leader and really change the way they think. And, you know, that's part of what I'd like to do here at Osberg. I mean, when I think about the impact we can have on the industry, I think that's one that really excites me is to really change the way the industry thinks about leveraging data, change the way the industry thinks about data and computer science. But that may not be the best way to build a business. Hmm. Uh, it may, you know, the best way to build a business may be just making sure that our end users, you know, whatever they're trying to use data for or software for, just making sure that we make them, you know, feel as though they're doing a better job and are much more efficient and faster and effective. Um, so, you know, when I sit down with a customer, I may not, I may paint the vision that I have, the dream that I have for how to utilize data and computer science and oil and gas, but that may not be what I'm selling them hmm. because um, I don't want to say that they may not be ready for it, but it is a different way of thinking and I think that uh, that's a challenge. And that's and it seems like that sometimes is that maybe the hardest part is is getting people from that you know from the point A to point B in terms of you know getting them to to really see and embrace that vision. And, and yeah. You know. So yeah, and I've talked to a lot of very smart people in this space um, that have been kind enough to give me advice. Um, and uh, and one individual in particular, you know, you know, I think his concern was is that we would try to fight that uphill climb uh, rather than, you know, you know, Henry Ford has this famous quote, you know, if you want to eat with the classes, you have to sell to the masses. Hmm. Um, you, know, the, the, you know, there's a lot of people in our, our industry, in every industry, that, you know, software technology data is really, you know, to just make their life easier and make them more effective at what they do, right? Right. Um, and, and I think that's important. I think I get really excited about, you know, getting them to think differently, but that's also much more challenging and, and maybe not the best business model. Oh yeah. Yeah. And so we try to do a little bit of both here. We try to push the industry forward in thinking differently in, in terms of how they utilize data and in terms of how they think about leveraging technology to, to, to execute on their strategies. Uh, at the same time, we try to make, you know, um, everybody's lives just easier in terms of the day-to-day -day of what they're already doing. Oh, yeah. Is it, it, do you find in some cases that as you solve their day-to-day -day problems, that over time as that relationship develops, that there might be opportunities you know, for them to start being able to embrace that vision that you have more and more? Yeah, so I, I think it's, it's just talking you know, over and over again about the vision. You know, I mean, you know, it's no different than building culture within our organization. You can't just say, hey, guys, here are our values. Um, memorize them and live them every day and then you're done. Like this is something that you have to, you have to talk about over and over and over again from many different perspectives. You have to talk about you know, how our, our values manifest you know, in how we interact with our customers and how we interact with each other. And it's repetitive. And that's, I think, how you change behavior. Yeah. I think it's the same way with, um, with selling a vision. It's not enough to say, you know, here's the vision, we're done, you know, I expect you guys get it. Uh, I have to talk many times, you know, you know, over and over and over with prospective customers before they, they start grasping, you know, exactly what it is we're kind of envisioning 
Um, and it's not for a lack of intelligence or anything else. It's just a different way of thinking. Yeah. Uh, and then when they start utilizing some of these ideas and seeing the payoff, then I think that's when adoption really becomes evident. Um, and I think that's one of the challenges we've had as a business is that we've had to create data and then we've had to create these B2B SaaS products for companies to interact with this data. And it's taken a lot of resources to just do that. I think the next step for us is to take the data we've built and productize these new ways of thinking about how to leverage that data. I think it's about, and that's something I've had to learn as a, as a young founder and CEO, is that um, it's, you know, I, I've often described this in the past as like the blue apron of, of oil and gas data and technology. We give you all the ingredients and we send it to you in a box. Yeah. But, you know, I think early on my expectation was is you'd be in your kitchen with plenty of time to mix those ingredients together and make this wonderful meal. Uh, I think what I, I failed to realize at the time was is that our end users want us to make the meal for them and serve it to them. Oh, you know, okay. it's, there are some of our users that would like to play with the data and the ingredients, if you will, and come up with their own kind of variations. Um, but that tends to be uh, not not the average user, um, and so so we really need to be delivering them, you know, these prescriptive analytics, these outputs that they can digest immediately and put to use as opposed to just giving them the ingredients and, and some of the tools to be able to do that on their own. Very interesting. And I, and that's, and that's, and I was thinking kind of along those lines, uh, for anyone who uh, would be listening and would want to understand more about what you've learned through this process in addition to what you shared. <laughs> there's, there's no shortage of lessons learned. Um, you know, yeah, yeah. And, and I, think, I think that's probably why second-time second founders get funded a little bit more easily than first-time founders is because um, uh, it is a huge learning curve um, in terms of uh, product development, in terms of culture building, in terms of communication. I mean, they're just all a whole wide variety of topics that we could discuss. Oh, yeah. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm kind of thinking, too, in terms of that vision that I know sometimes it can be so easy to get really focused on that, and yet there are all these other you know, parts and you know, moving parts to this whole situation. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, one of the things that, that I'm proud of is that um, I think it's easy for a founder with a really strong vision to, to make their company subservient to them. You know, you know, this is my kingdom, this is my product and vision that I want to build and, uh, and bring to the market. And there's, there's definitely that tension. There's definitely, and this isn't about ego. This is just about having a different view of the world and, and believing that it is valuable and, and wanting to share it, right? Um, but I'm proud of our team in that, um, and, and, you know, we've been self-aware that, that, you know, our job is, is to really serve our market, to really serve our end users. And that may be deprioritizing, you know, some of our strong vision uh, and really just focusing on our end user and listening to our end user and empathizing with our end user and trying to figure out how we can help them right now. I like that. So like there's, that. there's definitely that tension and I think it's a healthy tension. 
Yeah, and that's uh, and that's that's even something as I'm hearing you say this, I'm internalizing this myself and realizing that it's so important to actually be in there, almost like it's you know being in their world with them as much as, much as we can. Yeah, I, I think it's really easy when I think it's really easy to to kind of lose sight of you know who's ultimately paying for your product. <laughs> yeah, certainly not you. <laughs> Uh, I was wondering, as far as your life journey, if you might want to share a little bit about, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, where you came from, and exactly, you know, what what's, you know, what gave you the uh, the motivation or the inspiration to start Osberg. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how relevant, you know, my my upbringing was. My parents were teachers. Um, I would say that. Their biggest impact on Osberg was, um, you know, being around academics, you tend to question a lot of things. Um, I think asking good questions is a skill. <laughs> and, um, and so, uh, and then my, my undergraduate experience, um, you know, was creative in that I was really interested in some things at the intersections of science and policy and law. Um, I think doing things that are interdisciplinary has always just been a part of who I am. Hmm. Today, I love th doing things at the intersection of art, science, and innovation. Um, you know, I don't see myself outside of maybe one day farming uh, <laughs> doing much of anything else other than doing things at the intersection of computer science and oil and gas. I really mm -hmm. love being at that space. And, you know, I th I'm not oblivious to, to a lot of the great work that's being done in renewables. Um, you know, battery tech is really interesting. And I'm hopeful for the future. I, I, you know, I'm an environmentalist. I, I uh, you know, I hate to see... You know, the, the landscape cluttered by oil and gas wells as much as I hate to see the landscape cluttered by wind turbines. Oh, yeah. Or, you know, anything else that gets in the way of that, of that view. Um, but, you know, practically speaking, you know, we're going to be a carbon-based economy for a while. Um, you know, the, bat the chemistry for, for long-term storage for battery tech just isn't there right now. You know, we're going to see some battery tech in cars, I think, in the near term. But we're going to have to power those batteries, and you know, first of all, we're going to need more cobalt. You know, there's plenty of nickel, but but there's not a lot of mining done for cobalt. Secondly, um, we're going to need natural gas to to power those batteries, um, uh, and it's not that I'm necessarily just pro natural gas. I mean, it's just the reality. Oh yeah. And um, and then you know, if we want to store energy, we're going to have to figure out how to do that. Uh, because the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. And so, um, you know, as long as that battery technology for, for long-term storage isn't there, we're a carbon-based economy and there's lots of opportunity in, in oil and gas. And uh, it's such a huge industry that's ripe for, um, for innovation that it's an exciting place to be. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, how I got to the space was just through that family tragedy where I was kind of introduced to, to the traditional oil and gas space and just fell in love with it because there, it's a very creative industry. I mean, there's lots of engineering, there's lots of innovation, um, 
there's lots of room for innovation. It's a big industry. Um, you know, it's it's a complex industry. The nomenclature's, I think, unique. Um, and the people you work with, I mean, man, you meet you meet just some brilliant cowboys from the middle of nowhere, <laughs> and um, you know, very grounded people. Um, and uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it, there's just so much about the industry that I love um, that uh, I was just kind of drawn towards it. Um, so yeah, there wasn't like a, you know, I talk a lot about with, particularly with younger kids about whether following your passion is a great idea. Yeah. I think, um, you know, when you ask people what are they passionate about, it tends to be hobbies, tends to be like fishing, knitting, uh, sailing. Oh, yeah. Things like that. Those are things that are very difficult to build a career in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, unless you're very, very talented and have some rare skills you know, and, you know, maybe the, you know, marketing might be one of those skills, I don't know, but, but, um, uh, you know, what I do today certainly wasn't a passion that I followed. Hmm. It was something that, you know, just kind of unfolded in my life, an opportunity. I had an amazing mentor uh, that came out of that tragedy that really kind of opened my eyes to the possibilities of the industry. And uh, as I, you know, as I gained competency, mastery, you know, I got more autonomy, and I think those are key ingredients to passion. I think when you become very uh, skilled at something, when you become almost expert at something, and you excel, people naturally give you more freedom to build and innovate and, and autonomy. And I think when you have those ingredients, you become very passionate about it. And so, I think for me, this was. This became has become a passion of mine, um, where you know I wasn't really following the passion, if that makes sense. Hmm. And I think that's a mistake. I think a lot of young, uh, career-oriented kids make is that I think their advisors and their mentors tell them just find something you're passionate about hmm. and go do that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know that that you have to start with what you're passionate about. I think you can start with something you're interested in. Yeah. And maybe it will become your passion if, uh, if you get really good at it. Yeah. That, in fact, as I'm kind of thinking about, as you were, as you were speaking about that, kind of thinking about the passion may be more of what, I guess when you look at some, at someone's vision for, you know, making changes in the world and then you have the, the day-to-day, you know, working with people and so- helping them solve problems. Yeah. And that's what I wonder if maybe that's, I'm not sure if I'm understanding you that it's, that it's important really to, you know, if we all we do is focus on the vision and the passion that we have for something versus, you know, really being in the world and helping people deal, you know, with solving problems day-to-day. That, well, I think what I'm saying is, is that, so when you talk about careers, you have to... You have to get paid, <laughs> right? Right. Um, so if you if you advise folks and say follow your passion, and then you ask them what they're passionate about, in most cases, people are passionate about things that are hobbies, hmm. right? right? Things that they really enjoy, like you know, 
I'm really passionate. My son's really passionate right now about Pokemon, right? Right. And trading cards. He's not going to build a career in that. Right. Right. <laughs> um, uh, you know, whatever. You have to have rare and valuable skills in order to get compensated, right? Whether you're working for somebody or whether you're out on your own. Right. And what I'm saying is, is that um, what creates passion, I believe, and, and I, there are some other folks out there that, that I think would agree, is whenever you have mastery, competency, and whenever you have mastery and competency, you tend to get autonomy. You get freedom to kind of do what you want to do, right? Right. To, to innovate, build, whatever, because people trust you, right? Right. You've, you've demonstrated that, that, that you have this skill set and that you're, you're really good in this skill set. And therefore, you get more autonomy. And that's when those three things kind of come together, that's when you start developing passion, right? And so uh, you can develop passion in anything. There are people that are, are waste collectors or janitors, and you can ask them, are you passionate about your work? And there are studies that have shown that you can be very passionate about that because you might be really, really good at what you do right. and might be able to do it on your terms, yeah. whatever that means, because you are really good at what you do and you have a rare and valuable skill that people will pay for. Um, and so, um, you know, passion can be developed uh, is, is the point that I'm making rather than uh, just feeling like, you know, sitting there at the age of 18 or early 20s and thinking, well, I'm really passionate about going to spas, therefore I need to figure out how to create a career around that. <laughs> oh, yeah. May not be the best, may not be the best, you know, uh, guiding light for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I was wondering, too, when you were at the point at which you were, uh, and if I, it seems like I, I heard you speak a, a while back about when you were at the point where you were trying to decide whether you would just continue on, in the, if I understand correctly, in the oil and gas industry or do what you're doing at Osberg. I was just curious, you know, what it felt like to be at that, at that fork in the road. You know, I, I would say that that fork still lives in my life today. <laughs> um, you know, I've told my investors, I've told my customers... Uh, I have a, a very strong vision for how to utilize data in computer science for buying assets in oil and gas and identifying assets in oil and gas. So if I'm not enabling the market and selling to the market, then I'm my biggest consumer. Hmm. And so, um, you know, today, you know, the, I took the path of, of selling into the market because I was in my early 20s and one of the neat things about this industry is it can't be completely computer automated. You need that quantitative with that qualitative. You, hmm. need, you need, you know, a, you know, a computer can do some things to really augment human experience, augment human intelligence. But a computer, um, you know, uh, doesn't really have intuition a computer is not going to interpret certain things. Um, you still need that qualitative experience. And so when I first got into the industry and started thinking about how to leverage data to buy assets and identify assets, I needed that qualitative experience. I needed a geologist with 30 years of experience. I could build data and software with smart, young 20-year-olds. 
I couldn't drill a well, a 20,000 foot well or a 15,000 foot well with a smart 20 year old. Hmm. I needed somebody that has done that for a long time in their career. And at the time, because of the bust in the 80s, they're just, you know, the, if you're building an A team of, of players, right? First of all, if it's an A team, by definition, that means that, you know, you're looking for the top 10%. Right? Right. Smartest, brightest, most creative, right? Um, so you're already looking at a limited subset of the population. Well, because of the bust in the 80s, a lot of people left the industry. Hmm. And so those top minds were in huge demand. And a lot of them found themselves at these large independent oil and gas companies where they're making these big base salaries. They have stock that vests every six months. And they probably have what's called overrides, like a royalty on every well that they drill. Hmm. It's just an amazing comp package for them to show up at an eight to five and not have to go home and worry about payroll. Hmm. You know? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, competing with that, you know, having some crazy idea for how to leverage data and technology and competing with that and, and recruiting somebody away from one of these big independents would be very difficult to do. And very difficult to do in your early 20s without a a nice track record. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, that's why I chose the path of building data and B2B SaaS products because a lot of my colleagues in my early 20s were just kind of getting started in the industry. We were just reading the PSAs off of Edgar when Chesapeake was doing joint ventures with, with a lot of different companies in the Barnett and in the Fayetteville and, and trying to understand, you know, the ingenuity behind those deals in, in how they were structured, uh, we were just learning at that stage. Um, you know, fast forward 10 years later, and now my peers are starting to raise a couple hundred million dollars and start their own deals. And, you know, now my peers are picking locations, drilling wells. Um, and, uh, you know, it's different now. And so, you know, um, uh, you know, if at any point in the future I'm not selling to those folks. I'm still not trying to change their minds about how to leverage data and technology. Um, you know, I'd be honored to compete with them. Oh, yeah. And, and use my data and software to do so. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah, that's probably a ways off. Very good. Very good. Well, I, uh, this is, I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, this has been a great insight yeah. into Osberg and uh, understanding more about you, and, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for the questions. Thanks, Evan. All right. Have a good day.